Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. And together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society and bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis, backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to try and make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful, beneficial way. Because of the topics that we cover, some of our episodes might get heavy, and some of the topics might seem divisive. But we believe that even on these issues, common understanding can be found, and we hope that those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way that it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and for future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Here we go. A nice, light, easy to digest and figure out topic after a heavy few weeks talking about the First Amendment and tolerance and intolerance. This episode will surely be a topic we all basically agree on and have no issues to really untangle. Oh, what's this? I'm, I'm being handed a note. It says, yes, it says, you say that like every few episodes and it never turns out to be true. Uh, well, okay, yeah. That's because today we're talking about the minimum wage. You've probably seen discussion of it going around here or there or everywhere. Should we or should we not raise the minimum wage? This last round of coronavirus relief almost included a provision for a $15 minimum wage, but that got nixed so it would pass. There are a lot of big feelings about whether or not we should increase the minimum wage and what the effects of such an increase would be. Luckily, we're here to provide a primer about the minimum wage and what the arguments both for and against raising it are. So, let's get down to business. Before we get too far into this, we need to point out that there are two levels to this minimum wage conversation, the federal level and the state level. First, there's the federal minimum wage, which basically says that no worker anywhere in any state can be paid less than a certain amount. And then there's a state minimum wage, which can technically be anything that the state legislature or the voters of the state decide they want it to be. But no matter what it is, if it's lower than the federal minimum wage, then all workers in that state get paid the federal minimum wage. And this kind of plays into the controversy that we're going to talk about later, because like most things having to do with our government, there's friction between those who believe that the decision on a minimum wage should be left completely up to the state and those who believe it's the federal government's place to ensure that all Americans can earn a living wage. And actually, that's a great lead into the history portion of the episode. It is, although I will say, it's something of a misleading statement that we've run into when we're researching this, that no workers can earn below the federal minimum wage because in many states, tipped workers can. Yes, and we are going to talk about that. It is. I just wanted to put it up front here so that all of the people who have ever earned tips don't riot before yeah. we get to that Keep part listening because we're going to talk we about you. you. We're going to talk about you. We got you. So one of the first 
documented advocates of a standardized minimum wage in the United States was Samuel Gompers. And I just love his name. I just love it. It makes me smile every That's time. That's such an 1800s name. It really is. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was the founding president of the American Federation of Labor. And in 1898, he published an article called A Minimum Living Wage, making the argument that the government should require a living wage for all workers. And the idea wasn't completely rejected. In fact, Massachusetts passed its first state minimum wage law in 1912. In 1913, eight more states had followed suit. And then by the end of World War I, three more states and the District of Columbia all had minimum wage laws. But things hit a little hiccup in 1923 when SCOTUS, again, my favorite acronym, ruled that imposing a minimum wage violated employers and workers' liberty of contract under the Fifth Amendment and declared minimum wage laws invalid. In 1933, Franklin Delano Roosevelt unveiled his National Industrial Recovery Act and the organization that would spearhead the effort, the National Recovery Administration. That act established work hour limits and a minimum wage for workers in the private sector. Actually, a bunch of different minimum wages for a bunch of workers in a bunch of different sectors. But again, that act was also declared unconstitutional, again by the Supreme Court, in 1935. However, in 1933, Connecticut, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, and Utah also passed minimum wage laws. And then, in 1937, the court changed its precedence in what would become known as the Big Switch. Justice Owen Roberts, much to the surprise of, well, everyone, sided with the liberal minority of justices in upholding the minimum wage law in Washington state. This switch would prove to be crucial for the next part of the story, where we jump forward one whole year. So though the NIRA was essentially gutted when it was declared unconstitutional, it did lay the groundwork for many of the provisions that would come to make up the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. At that time, Congress found that a few employers within each industry were play paying substandard wages, and that was depressing overall wages for workers in those industries. Because of this, Congress argued that a third of the American population was ill-nourished, ill-clad, and ill-housed. And so the FLSA set a federalized minimum wage of 25 cents per hour, which increased to like 30 cents per hour the next year, and then to 40 cents for some industries in 1940. Big money. Uh, from 1940 to 1981, the federal minimum wage increased steadily to $3.25, with major amendments made every five or so years, and then a few years of subsequent increase. We hit a pause until 1989, but then by 91, the minimum wage had increased to $4.25, and then by 97, it had increased to $5.15, which it blows my mind that in 1997, the minimum wage was only $5.15. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. Also in 1989, Congress amended the Fair Labor Standards Act so that it applies only to businesses that do $500,000 per year in revenue, manufacture goods that will be sold across state lines, or engage in interstate commerce. And then finally, 
In 2009, we see the minimum wage increase to a whopping $7.25. Which brings us to now, basically. Right now in, in 2021, the federal minimum wage still sits at $7.25. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, around 1.1 million working Americans were earning minimum wage or less per hour. That less figure comes from tipped workers, like restaurant servers, who for the last 30 years have had their minimum wage set at $2.13 an hour. Told you, we weren't gonna ignore you. Nope. <sighs> I hate looking at that number. That never makes me so mad. Yeah. I worked for that number. Ah. That was, I just still can't believe it. My first job Insane. was $6.25 an hour. I earned above minimum wage in the year 2000. So. Boom. Hair flip. Look at you. I know, right? Big money bags over here. Right? Junior in high school earning above minimum wage. Currently, 29 states and the District of Columbia have all set higher minimum wages than are being federally required, which is good news. Currently, California is leading the way with a $14 minimum. That being said, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Tennessee do not even have established state minimum wages. Uh, and Georgia and Wyoming have set the state minimum below the federal minimum. So in all seven states, the federal minimum applies in most cases. But there are some like really specific exceptions. Um, there's the tipped worker exception. And then there are some other industries that can earn the state minimum if the state has a minimum and it's below the federal minimum, but those are super specific and we just, we didn't dive into those here. Um, not surprisingly, at least to me anyway, the states with no established minimum wage, well, four of them, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, and Louisiana also have the highest percentages of workers earning the federal minimum wage or less. So three to 4% of workers in each of those states are trying to make a living earning $7 and 25 cents or less per hour. And in every single one of those states, the minimum wage at 40 hours per week covers about 70% of the cost of living for a single adult in that state, let alone a family with one income earner or a family of four with two. In fact, for single income families, the number sits closer to 30% of the cost of living. That's a 70% gap between what they earn and what it costs to live there. The only state in which the set minimum wage meets the cost of living for a single adult, again, we're not even talking families, is Arizona, where the minimum wage is $12 an hour. And that brings us squarely to the topic of the working poor. This is the group of people who have spent at least 27 weeks in the labor force, but whose incomes still fall below the official poverty level. In 2018, that was 4.5% of the working population. Nearly 5% of the labor population worked for more than half a year, and their incomes were still below poverty level. For those of us who are bad with percentages and big numbers, like me, that translates to 696,400 people in the workforce working for less than what the government defines as poverty level. Do you know what the poverty guideline in 2018 was? 12,140 United States dollars. 
Imagine subsisting on $12,140 a year. And that's before taxes. That's, that's for a household with a single person. For a family of four, it shoots up to $25,100, essentially assuming two of the people are working and getting a slight adjustment up. These numbers are just for the continental United States, by the way. The poverty line for Alaska and Hawaii are a little higher, as in you have to make more money to get over the poverty guideline. To compare, the poverty guideline in 2021 is $12,880 for a single-person household, so about $740 more. Just overall, one in seven Americans are projected to have resources below the poverty level in 2021. 12% of the people responding to the December 2020 Census Bureau Household Pulse Survey reported either sometimes or often not having enough to eat in the past seven days, which is compared with 9% before the pandemic. And about one-fifth of renters reported being behind on their rent. A whopping 45% are expected to have family resources below 200% of the poverty level. That is, almost half of American households are expected to make less than $53,000 for a family of four in 2021. And that's $53,000 before taxes. That 200% line is actually used as a determinant for needs-based assistance, by the way. So while it might sound like a lot of money in a vacuum, it's still low enough that multiple organizations think that people making that amount will need financial assistance to afford certain services. Healthcare, for example, often employs this metric. We just bring this up to highlight where the United States stands right now when we talk about the minimum wage. The federal poverty level is a measurement of the minimum amount of annual income that is needed for individuals and families to pay for essentials. Things like housing, clothing, food, transportation. Making that level is literally considered the bare minimum to have basic necessities for life in the majority of America. There is no room in these calculations for emergency expenses or leisure activity or vacations. So meeting or even doubling the poverty guidelines does not mean a life of luxury by any means. Usually it means survival. So why, why are we even talking about this? Right? There's been a lot of discussion about the minimum wage in recent months, including, like we said before, a try at including it in the American Rescue Package, which failed. The target most advocates are pushing for is $15 for a federal minimum wage, though there are some Republican senators like Mitt Romney who have introduced a proposal that would increase the rate to $10 per hour with some other added regulations. But as usual, politicians and business owners can't seem to agree on a way forward. And raising the minimum to $15, including for tipped workers, would increase pay for about 17 million workers in the United States, which is somewhere near 11% of the currently employed population. Even raising it to $10 would affect 4.9 million workers, or around 3% of the working population. So why on earth is the idea of increasing the standard minimum wage of American workers controversial? One would think... 
that it would be a pretty straightforward logic chain from, hey, we have a significant percentage of the population that is classified as working poor, maybe we should adjust our pay rates, and many of the financial problems in of United States citizens and really people around the world were only exacerbated by the pandemic and our social safety networks, such as they are, are strained to their limits and beyond. So when someone floats the idea of raising the minimum wage right now, it's it hits a bit different than it has in the past. There's more on the line, more desperation from the lowest income households, and there's a deep level of stress on the part of business owners, especially small business owners, who are worrying about how to keep their companies alive, let alone increasing pay rates for their employees. This, of course, means that the conversation is automatically emotionally charged, and like everything else, appears to be polarized. If you're for raising the minimum wage, the argument is that you don't care about small businesses and think that burger flippers should be paid the same as paramedics. If you're against raising the minimum wage, you think profit margins are more important than human lives and think everyone in poverty is lazy and just needs to work harder. Obviously, this sets the stage for a balanced and thoughtful discussion. <laughs> right. Oh, and on top of this, interpreting the data for this is incredibly difficult. We haven't really talked about it directly here, and that's probably a shortcoming on our part. But there is a difference between the information contained in what researchers call raw data and the factual conclusions those researchers are able to draw from the data. Data is data, nothing more. It doesn't really tell us why things occur most of the time. Good scientists and scholars know this, which is why you'll frequently see hypotheses and conclusions change as we get more data about a scenario. It doesn't mean that the scientists were careless or intentionally misleading in their original analysis. It just means that they didn't have some crucial data to draw the right conclusion. For example, we know that poverty hits minority communities harder. The data shows this pretty clearly. But why does it hit these communities harder? What is it about being a person of color that shunts you into a lower income bracket more often than, than your white peers? Racists will say it's because of a culture difference. Scholars will say it's systemic. And yes, I will say that I recognize that there is a bias in those two statements. Unfortunately, the data itself doesn't say anything. It just exists. We have no way to directly measure if it's because of the person or because of the circumstances. Or if it's some intersection of the two. Data is data but the conclusions drawn from the data aren't always reliable or factual. And this same situation holds true for discussions about how raising the federal minimum wage will affect businesses and the American economy overall. The potential effects of raising the minimum wage are confounded by so many other factors that it's nearly impossible to definitively say, yes, this is going to happen if we raise the minimum wage. That said, nearly impossible is not the same as actually impossible, and some people are gluttons for punishment and love studying this. Thank you, economists. Luckily, <laughs> yes. we aren't the ones who had to run the studies. All we have to do is present all the hard work done by other people. And that is one of the reasons I love this show. There are actually some pretty thorough arguments on both sides. So why don't we talk about those now? Should we raise the minimum wage? Yes! Yes, absolutely we should. 
Show up. Show over. No yeah. other argument needed. Done. Until we get to the other ones. <laughs> okay. All right. Why? Why, Why should we raise well, this? What are the arguments? Robin? I mean, in the first case, the first argument for raising the, the minimum wage is it's popular, right? In what might be a little surprising to some people and not at all surprising to most of us, most Americans say they actually favor raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. According to a Reuters Ipsos poll, 59% of Americans supported the idea of raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. That's probably the most bipartisan support we can expect any mildly controversial bill to have, well, ever, but at least in years. And it's no surprise that it has such a broad base of support. A 2019 Congressional Budget Office report <laughs> projected a significant improvement in the standard of living for at least 17 million people, and roughly 1.3 million people would be elevated above the poverty line. Remember, that's a whopping $12,800. The 2021 CBO report adjusted this number to 0.9 million. So we can round that and say roughly a million Americans would no longer be in poverty just by raising the minimum wage alone. Which seems pretty straightforward. Poverty reduction is probably one of the strongest arguments for this. Moving out of poverty comes with a compounding benefit of reducing the need for federal and state government expenditures on things like social safety network services and financial aid. When someone is living at or below poverty or even within the appropriate margin of the poverty rate, remember that 200% marker we were talking about earlier? That margin comes into play here. When they're living in that zone, they frequently utilize services like the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, commonly known as WIC, or Federally Subsidized Housing. Lifting people out of poverty, or above the appropriate margin, means more people supporting themselves and lower payouts from the government. And there are also some economic benefits to this, right? Maybe one of the best arguments for raising the minimum wage is the stimulating effect that it would have on the economy. Almost immediately, companies would see an increase in business because people who had previously been unable to afford their services would have more disposable income. Now, this isn't to say that suddenly everyone's going to go out and buy the latest and greatest gaming system. But people are more able to buy the things that they need but don't have the ability to pay for. The higher minimum wage would generally have the most benefit for lower-income families. And these families, in turn, tend to spend a relatively larger fraction of their income. As a result, the total demand for goods and services would increase for several years, boosting overall real output. Now, there is a caveat, however, because the CBO projects that the economic effects from increases in demand would disappear after several years. This isn't to say that there would be a reversal in GDP. Nominal GDP would remain the same, though there may be a slight reduction in real GDP. Whether or not the GDP would return to pre-wage hike levels is uncertain, however. The effective wage increase may simply fade into the background while other factors continue to push the GDP forward. Another issue that this could help resolve would be increasing equity for workers in, in the labor force. On the level of equity for all workers, a $15 minimum wage would begin to reverse decades of an increasing pay gap between the most underpaid workers and workers receiving close to the minimum wage. This 
effect is especially pronounced when factoring in gender and racial identities. This was the case in the late 60s when a minimum wage increase explained 20% of the decrease in earnings disparity between black and white workers. Conversely, in 1979, nearly half the increase in inequality between women at the middle and bottom of the wage distribution was due to failures to adequately increase the minimum wage. That's just the middle and bottom. Half of that increase in their disparity was because of the minimum wage, not the people at the top making the most money. It's the people who are closest to each other. Yep. Another benefit, another argument for increasing the minimum wage would be its benefit to working adults. And this is that teenage burger flipper argument, right? I know. I hate it, but... I hate that. I have feelings. It's like nails on a mental chalkboard for me to hear burger flippers. Exactly. Contrary to popular claims that the minimum wage is largely the province of teenage workers trying to earn experience in the workforce... More than half of the workers that would benefit from this increase are adults between the ages of 25 and 54. Only one in 10 of those workers is a teenager. And more than half of the people who would benefit work full time. And more than 40% of the people who would benefit from a minimum wage hike have some college experience and fully 28% of them have children. Minimum wage earners are largely independent adults or families raising children, not kids working a summer job and living in their parents' basement. In fact, essential and frontline workers make up a majority of those who would benefit from a $15 minimum wage, including substitute teachers, nursing assistants, home health aides, employees of residential and nursing care facilities, grocers, janitors, housekeepers, servers, and cooks. 10 million healthcare education, construction, and manufacturing workers would see a raise. That's 31% of the people who would benefit from this. People who kept going to work day-to-day in the midst of a global pandemic. People that we full well know our country cannot operate without. These are people who deserve more than a round of applause and nice signs. The economy has grown dramatically in the course of the past several decades. Since the late 1960s, productivity has nearly doubled. That is to say, for each hour of work that an employee works, they are producing nearly twice as much of whatever product that they are supposed to produce as they were just over 50 years ago. If minimum wage had kept pace with the growth in productivity, it would be over $20 an hour today. So we are demanding more from our workers in society for less return. And it's no secret that this isn't exactly a formula for motivating your workforce to perform well. You know what it is a formula for? You need to do more. It's a formula for the Mm. fact that the average CEO earns 350 times their lowest paid workers income in a year. That's what it's a formula for. That's exactly right. And I, I hear that statistic and every time I bring it, every time it's in conversation, the point that, well, the company wouldn't exist without the CEO is brought up. Like they, they built the company and because they built the company, they deserve the income. You know, they deserve to make that much money because all these other people wouldn't have a job at all if it weren't for them. And while it may be the case 
that the CEO actually built the company, maybe, right? Most of the time, that's not the case. And I cannot think of a single job. I really cannot think of a single job in the C-suite that requires the 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 person working it to be making nearly three thousand dollars an hour yeah like that is deserving of that amount nope. of of money what are they doing right that is that much that astronomically so much more important than the person who actually makes the product the company is selling right like you want to know if the company you you want to know who the company can't survive without it's the guy on the first floor yep. doing all of the work that this guy on the 27th floor is selling. Yep. That's it. Without that guy on the first floor, CEO doesn't have anything to bring to the table for nothing. Nope. So you justify to me a $350 or a 350 times difference in the two of their wages. Now, should a CEO make more? I can see an argument for that. Sure. Why not? I just don't think it should be such an astronomical amount more. <laughs> right. It just doesn't, doesn't track. It doesn't track. Well, and it tracks, so. that tracks with the statistics you were just talking about, though, because I think it, I read a statistic the other day just in passing, um, and it was something like about 50 years ago, the average CEO earned 42 times their low wage workers' income. Okay, I could see that. Uh, but now we are looking at 350 times. And it just goes to show that, again, we've demanded more from our workers, not paid them in a way that keeps up with, with their growth and productivity. And we've continued paying our C-suite executives more and more and more because the companies more are more and more profitable. Well, productivity. Exactly yeah. right. And this, the CEOs, by and large, aren't responsible for that increase in productivity. No. It's not the CEO handing down dictates from on high saying, we're going to do things this way now, and that's going to give us more productivity. It's computers, mostly. It's the fact that we have computers now that <laughs> yes. do the labor that we don't have to do by hand anymore. Right. It, it has nothing to do with the CEO, unless the CEO, I guess, signed the check to acquire the computers. Or in the case Maybe, of some but I doubt tech companies, happened. they they pioneered the technology that you know makes everyone's jobs easier right those ceos do exist i get that uh but that's not a vast majority of ceos yeah that's not goldman sachs right all right that's not their (laughs) ceo golden parachute territory that's exactly like no no i'm i have yet to hear a compelling argument for what a CEO or really any C-suite executive does that is so deserving of that massive disparity in income. Agreed. But we digress. And also, we kind of make it sound like there are no legitimate arguments against increasing the federal minimum wage. But actually, that's not true. There are are some pretty, uh, pretty compelling arguments for not making that jump. And that's not to say there are arguments against raising the minimum wage at all. But they are arguments that make uh, that require us to consider a little bit more before we make some blanket increases. And the first one is basically because... just job losses and the cost of doing business. Uh, raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour by twenty twenty five could cost the U.S. labor market something like one point four million jobs, according to that same two thousand nineteen report by the Congressional Business Office. And it could decrease consumer spending, and it could even decrease overall household income. 
The logic used in this argument is that same standard logic that has been used to argue against minimum wage increases for time eternal. Paying workers more will increase the cost of doing business, which will mean that business owners have to raise their prices and pass that cost along to the customer, which means that the customer will purchase fewer things or services, which means that businesses will have a lower income and then the economy will slow. And this is an argument that many business owners stand behind. Running a small business in the United States is difficult, as it is, and it has been excruciatingly difficult over the last 12 months. About 53% of companies with less than 50 employees, as surveyed by CBiz, reported that the pandemic has had a moderate to severe impact on their business. Um, We do have to note that this argument isn't without counterpoints. There are many economic researchers that believe that increasing the minimum wage would not impact that many jobs. Instead, they believe that the economy overall and businesses specifically would see a boost from that number of workers who now have increased purchasing power, like we were talking about earlier. Um, But one of the most concerning potential outcomes of research on this subject is that increasing the federal minimum wage during the fallout of the pandemic might specifically and disproportionately cost low-wage workers their jobs. In 2014, economics researchers Jeffrey Clemens and Michael Wither used three years of data from the Great Recession, 2007 to 2009-ish, to study how raising the minimum wage during that time period affected low-wage workers. And their research found that in states that defaulted to the federal minimum wage, right, states where um, either their minimum wage was lower than or they didn't have an established minimum wage, there was a significantly negative effect on the income of low-wage workers from loss of employment to the increased probability of working without pay, like doing internships, um, and lost wage growth potential because of the reductions in their experience accumulation during that time. So while the idea of losing a million jobs is scary, the idea of causing disproportionate job loss for the very people that the wage hike should benefit is even scarier. And it gives good reason to pause before signing on to the increase. Some folks are cautioning against raising the federal minimum wage because of some potential negative effects on those who would earn that higher wage but still not be able to make a living where they are where they where they live where they are the working poor we talked about earlier mainly many of those families are headed by minimum wage earners and rely on programs like the supplemental nutrition assistance program snap or free school breakfasts and lunches WIC and Medicaid to ensure that everyone in the family, especially children, have access to enough food and appropriate health and dental care. Eligibility for programs like these in most states is based on the federal poverty level that we discussed toward the beginning of this episode. The general range for eligibility of these programs is from 130 to 200% of the federal poverty level. So that's between $34,450 and $53,000 in 2021. At $7.25 an hour, two full-time workers would earn around $30,000 a year to support their family. If we slightly more than double that, up to $15 an hour, that puts the same family at $62,400 per year and out of the range where they would have access to these benefit programs. 
We mentioned earlier that that was a positive, but even that income level may not be enough to meet their basic needs if they live in a state or an area with a high basic cost of living. For example, basic cost of living for a family of four in Hennepin County, Minneapolis. Nope. Hennepin County, Minnesota. Yep. Nope. Yep. Yep. Hennepin County, Minnesota. The M states get me every time. <laughs> I know it's not Montana. It's in Minneapolis. Hennepin County, Minnesota, which is around Minneapolis, that basic cost of living is actually $101,000. Now, this argument in particular isn't really a knock to increasing the minimum wage. It's more of an indicator that we probably need to reconsider what it takes to qualify for programs um, that help ensure these basic nutrition and access to healthcare. But until that happens, these people are going to be knocked out of that eligibility. And maybe adjusting it, you know, looks like tying eligibility to cost of living or, or something like that. That's a topic for another show. I will say, I'm going to add to this. You actually have to make a certain level of money to qualify for a lot of benefits. Yeah, that's just a whole other can of worms. Yeah. If you're too poor, you cannot qualify for certain assistance yep. because the law requires you to basically be showing that you're doing your part to to make ends meet Work and there. not just a, being a leech yeah. on society it's as you said it's a whole other can of worms i think it is a can of worms i again this is my bias showing but i think it is a particularly disgusting practice that is not ethically defensible in any way but i also have a strong strong bias when it comes to discussion of welfare programs because that is 100 percent the environment that i grew up in Uh, so i know that system from the inside um yeah so we should maybe cover it but it would have to be with the caveat that we would be we working inside of yeah, a pretty strong bias. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, down, down the, the road. road. Down the road. We'll talk about exactly. that. <sighs> okay. So uh, another significant consideration of raising the federal minimum wage is the stress that it'll put on already taxed systems like school districts and infrastructure systems. I have to admit, until I was doing research on the arguments against raising the the federal minimum wage, I didn't even consider this perspective. Um, But if you think about it, these industries aren't like regular businesses. They don't earn money from consumer purchases directly. They're funded by the state and federal governments, which are funded by some combination of taxes and grants, and their budgets are largely out of their control. So increasing the base pay for workers in these systems, sometimes by more than double, will add more layers of difficulty to their operations. Um, As a good example, let's take a look at K-12 public schools specifically. Today, about 3 million low-wage earners make up the structure of K-12 school operations. They're the cooks and the janitors and the secretaries and the paraprofessionals and the classroom helpers and the before and after school program staff. School districts have filled their ranks with these workers in an effort to offset the effects of shrinking budgets and low tax income. According to an article in Education Week, no state so far has explicitly set aside extra money to compensate school districts for new, costly minimum wage requirements. So what then are administrators supposed to do when their payroll cost spikes? Some administrators who have been through the process say that they've had to upend their entire employees' pay structure. 
Others say that they have to renegotiate major contracts with substitute teachers and transportation and food service vendors. Other options include appealing to voters to raise taxes to afford the new wages, which (laughs) we all know how that's going to turn out. Yeah. Right? Okay. Especially, Especially in school districts where there isn't money to give to increase taxes. If you look at right. our poorest school districts, the, even if Nobody's the voters wanted to, agree. they couldn't. Yeah. it's You're getting blood from a, what is it, blood from a stone yeah. at that point. Um, they could also lay off employees or freeze hiring or give their low-wage workers the required increases, but then forego other priorities like raising, raising teacher salaries and repairing crumbling facilities and serving their children fresh vegetables. The issue here is not a willingness to see hourly workers make a living wage. It's simply the ability to cover the cost when public school budgets are already slim and states are facing steep drops in sales tax revenue and steep increases in expenditures from social services due to the pandemic. If, as some researchers are suggesting, education spending after the COVID pandemic follows a similar pattern to that of the Great Recession, we can expect an average decrease of 7% in education spending across the country. I mean, where exactly are administrators supposed to find money to double their payroll costs? That makes me so sick to my stomach. You know, I've made no secret here that investing in our education is like probably my A number one most important thing we could do as a society. It's why we exist. Yeah. We are trying to invest in in education generally, but this K through 12 especially and and increasing the resources available to our teachers, but also to our children, Mm -hmm. our students to allow them to learn better. I don't get why people are like, you know what? Ah, Let's not pay our schools. (laughs) Let's not pay our teachers. I want them to constantly be flirting with living in the street. Yeah, exactly. We, we yeah. would really like our teachers to have to decide between teaching our children and using the degrees that they have dedicated countless hours to and, you know, all of the care that they have for children and literally going to work at McDonald's because McDonald's can afford to pay them $15 an hour. I have a friend who quit being a teacher to be a comedian. <laughs> who did? I couldn't hear the first part of that. One of my friends. One of my friends. Yep. He quit teaching and at the high school level um, to be be a comedian. And I I mean, I'm not going to pretend like he makes more money as a comedian, but like the grind of being a teacher, which is something that he is passionate about, combined with the reward, at least the monetary stability reward, it was just too much. He was burning at both ends to do that, and he decided to pursue something that at least made him happy. Even Like, if he was going to be poor, he was going to be poor, but doing something that gave him gratification on a different yeah. level. And and we didn't... And it's just... Yeah. It's too much. Like, why should a teacher have to choose that? Why should teachers have to turn to TikTok and sell merch, which, not knocking right. that, because... Some of my favorite TikTokers are teachers. There's one particular kindergarten teacher um, who almost every day does an updates on, he calls his students the kindies. And so it's what the kindies asked him today unprompted. It's gold. 
But like, why should he have to sell merchandise to supplement his income so that he can afford to live and right. teach our kids kindergarten? Yeah. Um, I wanted to bring something up about the job losses and the cost of doing business as the argument against raising the minimum rate, what, ooh, raising the minimum wage. Um, the, the idea that if we raise the minimum wage and we have to pay our employees more, we will either have to fire them, have fewer employees, or our business is going to go out of business. Because that is used as the argument, hey, we shouldn't do that. But really, what those people are saying, what those companies are saying, is that they are subsidizing their company with your tax dollars. Yeah. Their employees are more likely to be on assistance programs, and therefore, the money that their income is basically coming in from the job that pays them $7.25 an hour and these social safety programs, your and my taxes are going to them. And while I do not mind funding social safety programs, I think it is a noble use of my taxes. Absolutely. I do not think it should be used to subsidize a company's bottom line. Right. If you can't pay your company, your employees enough to buy food, you are failing as a company and I am keeping you afloat by paying taxes. That is a leech on society. <laughs> yeah. And, and we didn't even spend any time in this episode talking about looking at things on a, a state-specific level, um, because there is an argument to be made that while that is the case in some places where uh, $7.25 an hour doesn't necessarily cover everyone's expenses, that's, that's, a, the, that's the case mostly across the board, there are many states where $15 an hour would more than cover. So it, there are some right. states where paying workers $15 an hour more than twice as much would put a significant burden on the business in a location where the cost of living wouldn't necessarily require it to be quite that high. That's, again, that's specific and not across the board and absolutely highlights the fact that a federal minimum wage doesn't take into account the cost of living in each individual state. Um, and that's, that's more of a conversation and, and more specifics to get into. Um, Right. More than we have time for, really. Yeah. It, it just gets really, really deeply complicated. So the whole purpose of this episode was basically just to give you all an idea of, of where the arguments sit right now, where we are, um, and then hopefully encourage you to go do a little bit more research about what the cost of living is like in your state. What is the minimum wage in your state? What? What do you need to live comfortably in your state? Yeah. And... There's a deeper conversation to be had here that we didn't even bring up at all, but I want to put it out there because I want people thinking about it. But one of the underlying questions that the minimum wage conversation brings up and, and the healthcare, the, medic, the, the medical care for all, healthcare for all programs and, and suggestions, the things that they bring up are our underlying assumptions about the value of a human being. Yes. What gives a human value and one of the reasons i hate it when people say burger flipper 
is they're using it as a pejorative. It's a derogatory statement towards the person who's flipping burgers as if they do not deserve to have any luxuries in life. You know, you deserve to struggle if you're flipping burgers. Totally putting aside the fact that sometimes that's all those people can do or that's the only job that's hiring in their little town. Right. You know, it, it, it creates a false narrative about the people who actually work in as a burger flipper. And I don't know. I mean, I've worked in fast food before. And yes, there are young people in there. But there's always, always, every shift, more than one adult, like 30s, 40s, working in that shift too. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about, the significant, the most significant portion of people who would benefit from a minimum wage increase are working adults, not teenagers. So why does them being a burger flipper mean that they are less worthy of having any sort of comfort in their life. Right. And if your argument is, well, they don't deserve to make as much as an EMT or a paramedic, you're thinking about it backwards, in my opinion. The EMT and the paramedic should make more. Right. That's like, it just means that we're We are underpaying, underpaying them all. Yeah. Yeah. We're unpaying these people all the way across the board, not just the minimum wage workers. And if our standard is is how little can we get away with paying people who work for us, like it makes me question, because I am not a small business owner, um, it makes me question, though, why is your priority as a business owner to pay your workers as little as possible in order to make your business work? I feel like if we're going to put the appropriate amount of value on a human being, the question should be, what business can I do in which I can pay my workers enough to live and still run a profitable business? Mm -hmm. Or even, what can I do as the owner? Maybe I hire fewer people, but keep the people that I have paid more, and I just have to put in more hours. Because, right. I mean... <laughs> It's your business. You should be the primary person working to keep it floating. Yeah. Oh, but we are we're uh, falling into a discussion of the value of capitalism and I don't think anybody has time for that. <laughs> not oh, today. No, especially not tonight. Um You know what we do have time for though? We do have time to ask mm. these kind people if they would be willing mm -hmm. to leave us a review on their favorite podcasting platform. We do have time for that. We do have time for that. We have time we to do. say please, please, please. We tell you every single week how incredibly valuable that would be to us and to the other people who listen to our show or to people who are hoping to find our show or don't even know what they're missing yet. There's a really easy way to do that. You can find it in the show notes of this episode in the episode description on our Facebook page, on our Instagram account. I don't know if I've put it on our Twitter yet, but that's okay because we don't have any Twitter followers yet. But it is wow, very many places job, where you can. I know, right? <laughs> there are very many places where you can find that link to leave us a review, like our social media accounts. Go to Twitter, go to Instagram, go to Facebook, search Fireside Breakdowns, and you'll find us. Occasionally, 
when we don't have norm, double our normal workloads. We like to post on social media. Um, mm. Hopefully, we're going to do that again soon. Uh, yeah, maybe this week will be much better than last week for both exactly. of us. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. you can find us there. Yeah. And we are going to post at least two things this week. Hopefully more like five things. But you should follow us there. Good pluck. Oh, email also, firesidebreakdowns oh, yes. at gmail.com. Firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. If you have, yeah, we haven't actually reminded people of this, but if you have questions, send them to us. Post them on our page. Let us know. We love doing listener-suggested questions. Yes. It's a favorites. It's a favorites. Um, yep. So how about we do our good news slash women's history month uh, bit here? I like and then it. we'll let you all I go. I like it. This one's a great like one. So why don't you tell us all about it? It's super cool. All right. The Senate on Monday confirmed New Mexico Rep. Deborah Holland, Deb Holland, as Secretary of the Interior, making her the first Native American to lead a cabinet department and the first to lead the Interior. Holland is a member of the Laguna Pueblo and a 35th generation resident of New Mexico, which means that for the first time ever, a Native American will lead the federal agency that has wielded influence over the nation's tribes for nearly two centuries. The Interior also oversees a host of other issues, including energy development on public lands and waters, national parks and endangered species, and Holland has indicated that her heritage and connection to the land will influence her decision-making and how she chooses to lead the agency. I feel like this is a no-brainer. Right? This should... This Why is... Why is... Miss Holland... Mrs. Holland, I actually, I don't know if she has an honorific, but if she has that, I would use that. Why is she the first, the first Native American to lead the agency that makes the, 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 the lion's share of decisions about our indigenous population in this we country? We did about five episodes on that. I know. <laughs> I know, I know, I know this. It's a rhetorical question because the answer is depressing. But it, like, I'm so happy this has happened. And I hope that her appointment allows some serious, significant progress to yes. be made in our Native communities because they have been hit time after time, crisis after crisis, harder than just about any other community. The pandemic didn't skip over our our tribal lands. No. It just hammered them just as hard as anybody else. This makes me happy. I think this is the best. Yeah. News. I'm I'm super excited about it. I did a little dance when I heard the news. Yep. It was great. Any final thoughts? We really we really have to find a topic that's not this complicated. I know we say it every single week. I don't week. think it's going to happen. Yeah. You know, one of our listener requests that I had forgotten about and I kind of said we weren't going to do, but now I'm thinking we need to do it. You know what it is? God, what? It's uh, myths and facts about the vaccine and oh coronavirus. Oh, I did. I just got my yeah. first shot this week. Oh, congratulations. I got mine two weeks ago. Yep. I get my second shot in three days. Nice. Do you have any side effects? Uh, just my arm got real sore. That's it. Hmm. I didn't. 
I didn't have, I didn't even have any soreness. I didn't even feel the shot go in. No, I actually, I'm pretty phobic when it comes to getting shots. I can have my blood drawn all day long, but getting shots is, is a little bit difficult for me. And this was like nothing. Nothing. I've had mosquito bites that hurt more. Like legitimately, literally I've had mosquito bites that hurt more. A hundred percent. So (sighs) that's our public service for the day. Get your shots. shots. They're not that bad. Get your shots. Oh man, I don't know if we can I'll let you guys know next week how the second shot goes for me other than that thank you all so much thank you for listening spread the word and until next week take care of each other